of February. Morning. Chapter 4. Calypso. A croissant wilts next to me. I ordered it upon my arrival at the cafe, but I've met Bloom for the first time, and his daily meanderings have distracted me from eating. Strange, though, for all Bloom seems to think about, besides women, is food. My tongue curled in on itself when he lamented about the peculiar taste of liver. Meat in general I do not fancy as much as I do sweet treats. February. Morning. Chapter 5. Lotus Eaters. I couldn't see the morning light as it leaked through the slit between curtain and window. I knew it to be there, for I could feel it be morning in my body, but my eyes wouldn't make the light appear. It was white and blurred, and I knew it to be because I woke too early before my eyes could adjust. Out from sheets on skin, feet on floor, wall here, touching it with fingers, bump. This must be the doorway, the long stretch of wall of the corridor, flat under my palm. There, yes, bathroom on the left. My knees shook as I fumbled with my pants, crumpling onto the toilet as soon as I removed the coverings from my bottom. My relieving myself recalled Bloom relieving himself. I am not as vulgar, or rather, I cannot bear to write about being so vulgar, but then again, perhaps vulgar, though, isn't the correct word. Blunt? Could that be better? Crossing the hall to the toilet, it is always the first thing I need to attend to after waking, but usually my eyes aren't so bad. I returned to bed where I laid on my back, legs and arms extended straight, and let my eyes close and rest for a bit longer against the pale light, pale light over Sandy Mount Strand. Stephen smells his mother even in death. He can't touch her. No one can touch the dead. Never feel them against the skin again. I'm not sure if she speaks to Stephen ghost-like. To see something is to know it's real. Is that what Aristotle said? Then what about seeing a ghost? What about seeing with the imagination? I now know you can see with the imagination and create with the imagination, and that the line between reality and imagination can be blurred almost to the point of unrecognition. Initially the characters of an iconic literary masterpiece, Stephen and Bloom became companions I saw with my imagination. February, late morning, chapter six, Hatties. Dublin in no way resembles Paris, 
Though both cities curve like lips around the smile of a river which cuts one side from the other. Rive de gauche, rive droite. And though nestled just across the English Channel, I've never crossed the water to the city, to Dublin. Joyce knew this about me, though. Even as I read, trekking with Bloom and the rest of the funeral procession through the streets, I've come to know the Irish city. From what I can see in Paris are the Dublin streets as Joyce saw them from Paris. Of course, though he knew Dublin, having grown there, he wrote each minute detail from Paris. Once the afternoon has stolen my eyesight and I can no longer make out edges or sharpness or letters, the man next to me, sitting at a table, comes to resemble what I imagine Joyce looked like. He ports a hat, as I imagine Joyce to have done, as Stephen did. Paris is a city for hats. I should purchase myself one. On the way home, perhaps, that small boutique at the beginning of La Rue de Martyr. Surely they have hats. Not anything too cliché, though. I wish to look the part. What part? Someone like Joyce, yes. Shakespeare and Company, a far walk. Used to descend Rue des Martyrs to Rue Montmartre, following the straight line of street all the way to Ile de la Cité. Notre Dame there, and just across the river, the bookshop. Crowded now in these modern days. Would Joyce like it now? All the people. He'd wear a hat if you showed his face, surely. The waiter approaches. He takes my dishes and deposits the bill, lines running together on the white paper surface. He returns. How much? Four fifty-five. I hand him three coins, and he counts my change. I passed the shop I thought sold hats on the walk home, not being able to make out how much beyond the display mu- beyond the display window. It is my eyesight. I dab a handkerchief to my cheeks to dry the tears the wind has pulled from my sensitive eyes. My ambition for a hat falling short, becoming nothing. February, pre-dawn, chapter six, Hatties. In my nightmare, bodies climbed out of the graves as if mounting a ladder vertically emerging from under earth. Bloom imagines bodies to be buried in such a way when he attends Paddy Dignam's funeral. What moves the body? What attacks the heart in such a way that it stops the body when it dies? Latte today, one pan au chocolat. The milk tames the bitter espresso bite. The dark swirls buried within buttery layers recall bodies buried within sheets. Are corpses wrapped before being placed in the coffin before being placed underground? I do not eat the pastry.
much about death in the reading of Ulysses. Initially shocked at the sentiments presented on death and life in this chapter, they seemed to replay throughout the remaining chapters of the work in little scattered pockets resurfacing as a motif in this song. It's interesting to look back now and see the role they played so early on. Seventeen February, early afternoon, Chapter Seven, Aeolus. The wind kept me. In a folder, I carry the pages I write. This journal is not bound in a notebook, but kept upon stray sheets I wrangle into order with paper clips. As I ascended the cobbled streets to Café Montmartre this morning, the hands of the winds played with the frayed ends of my scarf. Though early autumn, the cold of winter, the cold of winter bites with the breeze. Tendrils of swirling air began as playful hands, then quickly morphed into wrestling arms. The hat I dug from an old trunk with items from my university days flew from my head. Shouldn't have bothered with headwear. Wanted to fit the part. Wanted to recall Stephen and Joyce and myself. Where is the self? I looked to my legs, my knees, my feet, to examine if I recognized them in corporeal form as my own, and the wind sucked my pages from where I'd carried them in my folder against my chest in front of me like a shield. So I began plucking them from where the wind had deposited them along my route. So too did the kind pedestrians who glimpsed my struggle. I wonder if they read any of my words. I wonder how much they can tell of my endeavor from my words. Gathering the sheets, I began to run low on breath. My lungs worked as I raced to capture the pages before they blew too far into the city that I couldn't retrieve them. Holes in the narrative caused by the wind. I spent the better part of the morning rearranging my composition before entering with bloom into the offices of the freeman. I caught fragments as I read. The sound of the new printing machines, first presented as thumping, thumping, they thump, thump, thumped. Within the newsroom, the racket of thumping permeates, clanks, headlines, bylines, designs. Oh, to be an editor among so many fragmented parts, to link so many parts into a paper, into cohesion. Bloom wonders what happens to newspapers once they've been read. How long does an advertisement advertise? Does it only touch the first reader of the paper? What about the butcher who uses the paper to wrap meat? Does the meat care that it's wrapped in advertisements? Do the people consuming the meat care? Consume meat. Consume advertisements. Consume, consume, consume. Coffee in the back of the throat. One sip, two.
Interesting, upon reflection, how this chapter invoked curiosity about what reading sounded like. It is silent on the outside, yet cacophonic on the inside. Twenty-eight February, mid-morning, chapter eight. Lestragonians. It has been a while since I've opened the pages of Ulysses. My glasses fell from my face as I walked home from the market last week, and I, stepping forward to bend and search for them, crushed both frames under my weight. Nothing could be salvaged, and I peered at the world through distorted desolations. The new frames that arrived in the mail took five days. And during that time, I have been unable to progress in my reading. I spent a great deal of time sitting beneath the window in the living room of my apartment that looks out over the market street below. The children race to school on scooters as their parents walk briskly behind them in attempts to match the pace of the wheels. In the afternoon, the young university students flock to the corner cafes. Following the conclusion of their courses for the day, they drink espressos until the sun sinks low, and then they drink wine. Their laughter swells as the day ages. My wife and I never had children, so I've never known what it is to care for a child. The intricate sadness Bloom experiences for his dead son Rudy exists at a different, as at a distance from my comprehension. Reminds me of other deaths, however. My best friend Jean Paul. I remember dinner at Café Saint Michel with him and Claudia. All I could focus on were his varicose veins. They outlined his skin into scraggly patches. Less than a week later, Claudia called, crying, and reported the failure of his heart. I'm not sure if the veins had anything to do with his heart, but I can't think of one without the other. Bloom too, it seems, experiences thoughts of Rudy. They seem to just come upon him, as thoughts of his dead dead mother seem to come upon Stephen. Both men are missing someone who will never return to them in life, but who returns to them in thought almost constantly. Even when he is not mentioned, it seems Rudy, and other thoughts of death hover at the edge of Bloom's consciousness. I mark these pages in my book, not because I want to think of death, but so I can look closer at some of my own thoughts, and perhaps investigate whether I do this too. Perhaps none of us can escape the constant pull towards death. Whether this is in thought or action, life is a flow to death. It is a spring. Where does the flow end? I am traversing my way there now.